Hello and welcome to Contemplations and today we are going to be talking about right-wing wokeism which um, isn't necessarily all about right-wingers that kowtow to wokeism but merely mirror their behaviour and this is a term that we've used sort of internally um, to refer to this sort of thing as we see it as counterproductive towards getting any meaningful political change which ultimately is what we all want right and so this is going to be more of a cautionary tale. We're not going to be lecturing people and telling them exactly what to do and how to conduct themselves, but more pointing out flaws in certain ways of conducting oneself, particularly when it comes to politics, that might end up alienating people and preventing you from convincing people. And that's ultimately the aim of this, is to give you good advice, to allow you to approach political rhetoric and that side of things more effectively because I think we certainly could do with that. So I'm very pleased to have Stelios. And, Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. That's all right. It's always a pleasure. And I think that this is something that both of us um, are quite keen to talk about because we notice it all the time doing the job that we do. And it, it does get kind of annoying and aggravating, doesn't it? I, I don't know how you feel about it more generally. We are going to go into definitions and stuff, but just talking about our general impressions first. I think it does, because in general, this kind of woke culture is corrosive. Mm -hmm. And it is corrosive of institutions that I believe are time-tested and have proved their value. And it amazes me to watch people who have benefited from these institutions be completely unaware of the of their value, their history, and to basically not care at all about preserving them. Because for some reason, somewhere they heard a half-truth, and they think that it's the entirety of truth, and they are anxious to get done with them, with these institutions. And I am a deep believer in the idea that you shouldn't be a monster to defeat monsters, and that you can defeat monsters without being a monster. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, the ends justify the means yeah. is mostly associated with communist thinking, isn't it? Of course, it's not a communist yes. sentiment necessarily. This is a sentiment that is found all throughout history. But in the, the history of you know politics of the last hundred years, it has been the justification for most atrocities conducted by human beings. So exactly. it's worth bearing in mind the dangers of going down that route. Yes, exactly. And I would say that the, the main danger is the danger of the half-truth. Most people, they look at something and they associate it with the entirety of the truth. And I would say that things are unfortunately more complex and we should bear in mind that complexity and bearing always the whole in mind. When we stop bearing the whole in mind, we stop looking at the bigger picture. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is a, isn't this a commonsensical saying that you should constantly look at the bigger picture? Of course. Yeah. It arose from ordinary people. It's not a academic construct. It's not some academic who came out and said you should constantly look at the bigger picture and not miss the forest for the trees. This is another expression, by the way, mm -hmm. that I think is a is a good expression. I use that one quite a lot, to be fair. Yeah, and it's good to use sayings like that because sayings usually arise from ordinary people going about their ordinary business. So a people's sayings can tell a lot about the people. Mm -hmm. I also like how they come to be. 
it's not that someone's decided this is a good phrase, I'm going to make it popular. Yeah. It's just a, a sort of truism or a common sense, you could say, although I question the um, applicability of that turn of phrase in the modern day. Sense is becoming increasingly uncommon. But um, it, it's really quite useful to use these turns of phrases because they also have been passed down for a long time and you're, you're the custodian of a, a societal truth, if you will, not with a capital T, but you know, there's, there's some element of meaning to it that you might not get otherwise. And also they're quippy and fun. Yes, but when you say that common sense is becoming increasingly uncommon, when you say that this is because we allow the prisms of ideology to contaminate common sense. So we constantly intellectualize, and I would say over-intellectualize, things that are obviously true. Well, yes. This and is, we try um, to give increasingly more complex accounts of why something is the case and why something isn't the case, which I find frequently leading us to a bad situation. Mm -hmm. I'm quite a big fan of Occam's Razor. Normally, yeah. the simplest explanation is the best one. And particularly when it comes to human behavior, um, there are lots and lots of potential factors, of course. So it is a bit more complicated. I mean, I, I always bring up the point of the human brain is the most complicated thing in the known universe. And so um, everyone should approach, you know, understanding your own frame of mind with a massive dose of humility. But at the same time, I think that there are things that you can understand about yourself, um, particularly how you're predisposed to behave and react um, that are more rooted in biology, that are shared between human beings. And because yes. they are held in common, you can better understand them. Because if you notice a pattern of behavior that occurs in most people, it's fair to say that there's something about biology that is programming that into people rather than it being cultural. Because if it's cultural, then there's going to be variation within, say, a global population or in this day and age, even within a nation. And so I think that that's a port, an important caveat to make as well. Yes. But shall we get onto some definitions of what woke actually is? Because yes. um, one, uh, people always seem to say that, well, no one ever defines what woke is. Um, well, Wikipedia and the Oxford Dictionary have definitions that aren't really that objectionable. Um, they tick the right boxes and they may be framed in a way that I perhaps wouldn't have framed them. But you get the gist. So Wikipedia says, um, woke is an adjective derived from African-American vernacular English, which is true, that is where it comes from, meaning alert to racial prejudice and discrimination. Beginning in the 2010s, it came to encompass a broader awareness of social inequalities such as racial justice, sexism and LGBT rights. Basically, intersectionalism, isn't it? Um, woke has also been used as shorthand for some ideas of the American left involving identity politics, true, and social justice, such as white privilege and reparations for slavery in the United States. That, that doesn't seem that controversial, does it? I know we might phrase it slightly differently, and I think it's being used in the modern day as more of a pejorative term to mean, you know, you're, you're, you have ridiculous ideas because of course the left don't refer to themselves as woke anymore. It was one of the words, one of the few words actually that was captured by the right and turned against them. The left love doing this to us. 
we very rarely successfully do it to them, which um, I think a lesson can be learnt there, can't it? In that you can just laden a term that they're using. It's like um, with the, the the trans stuff and the um, I forgot what they're called. The LGBTQ plus. The, the drag queens um, yeah. doing drag queen story hour, and people started calling them groomers, and all of a sudden. It caught. It did, yeah. And yeah. all of these negative terms started to stick. And because it was starting to stick, uh, the establishment really uh, got on it and said that this is unacceptable. They're, they're calling everyone who's um, LGBT um, a paedophile and things like that, which wasn't what, it wasn't what was going on. It was more that these specific people, specifically targeting children, um, are doing it in a way in which they're grooming the children to become like them, which makes perfect sense why you would object to it. What does the Oxford Dictionary say about woke? It says, aware of social and political issues, especially racism, and it also adds the caveat, this word is often used in a disapproving way by people who think that some other people are too easily upset about these issues or talk too much about them in a way that does not change anything. Okay. <laughs> I mean, obviously there is a kind of bias in the definition. Mm -hmm. And I think that generally speaking, when we are looking at dictionaries, we forget that dictionaries are registered by individual persons who register what they think is the conventional meaning of a term. Mm -hmm. Unless you're the French uh, speaking world, in which case it's determined by the French government. And changes all the time. Uh, well, it? not nearly as much as English. English, you, you kind of, any old word can sneak into the Oxford or Cambridge dictionaries. Yeah. Like uh, they, they added goblin mode into the dictionary. So if that can make it in, then anything can. <laughs> I, I, I love this term, by the way, goblin <laughs> mode. But let me just say one thing, because I frequently deal with the history of ideas. And here is where dictionaries are helpful, but they can only get you so far. When you look at the history of an idea, like for instance, I'm looking at the history of the idea of reason and the history of the idea of liberty. You frequently get people who say liberty is this or that, but I'm a bit more scholastic because I constantly like looking past language and looking at reality and how these words are supposed to describe elements of reality. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about a term like woke, that is a term that characterizes persons. There are many questions to ask with respect to what exactly it is about persons that the term woke captures. So is it about the character? If it's about the character, what about their character is it? Because you could have, for instance, irascible wokeists and you could have wokeists who are a bit more, uh, uh, are less irascible. Okay, you could have uh, all sorts of things. So the question is, what is wokeism? Is wokeism a disposition? Is it a trait of character? Is it a set of beliefs? Does it refer to the manner in which beliefs are heard, held? All these are different. And frequently that is the issue because both you and I are interested in introducing some nuance mm -hmm. into what we're talking about. And nuance is necessary if 
you actually want to understand how things are. are. I think that out of all of the things you've listed there, it applies to all of them, but stereotypes of what the typical group member is. Exactly. So you, you have these sort of characters yep. in the, the woke sort of Bible, if you will. I don't yep. know why I've just invented that term. But, you know, you have that, uh, the example of the arch feminist called Big Red. Yeah. And that became like an archetype. Yes. And you have these archetypal stereotypes of these people who exhibit certain traits or behaviours or yeah. beliefs. Exactly. And our focus isn't necessarily on the ideology of woke. I think we cover this a lot on the live podcast and it's, it's well-trodden territory. But the actual behaviour and approach to politics is the thing that we're interested in. And, and particularly why the right is adopting some of these things, even though they're sort of symptomatic of the ills that motivate their enemy in the first place. And my argument would be that in imitating the or lowering yourself to the level that they conduct themselves, you're opening yourself up to the same problems that motivate them to be the way they are in the first place. And becoming a mirror image of your enemy is not a very dignified thing to have happen to you. It's actually uh, debasing yourself. You just become a reaction to people who you dislike. But at the same time, you conduct yourself and share lots of traits with them, even though you object to them. And it becomes this impossible to resolve situation. If, if everyone um, adopted woke yes. methods of engaging in, say, discourse or in politics more generally, there would be no civil society, basically. It would completely yes. dissolve. And although succeeding in politics is very, very important, you don't want this uh, situation, which I think is very unlikely, but still, um, you don't want a situation whereby you have a breakdown of civil discourse, which eventually erodes the, the entire fabric of society. Because yes. if if people can't cooperate, then you can't have a civilization. Exactly. And I think that people like to over-egg how far along we are with this. I think this is only in its infancy, really. It could get significantly worse to the point where, you know... Um, I like if, your idea about sure. the trap that you're saying that we may fall into. Because a lot of the time, the people we are going to talk about they do think that there is no problem with being with adopting the same policies and the same means of argumentation against the woke or the same yeah mm -hmm. it's it reminds me of the concept of anti-racism and also putting the <laughs> anti-clothes in favor of it it's it's more of the same and in being more of the same it is an instance i would say of useful idiocy why because it leads us to the disintegration of the social order that people from the right wing claim to support and lament its decline. And it is the exact social order that the left is constantly accusing as being the worst thing ever in the history of the universe. So in adopting these kinds of woke behavior, People from the right are acting like useful idiots of the left and they are destroying the very fabric of the society they claim to be defending. 
Exactly, yeah. And it's like this sort of internal rot, and it's not necessarily like you'll even notice it's happening. Like some some of these things, you know, it's not. I'm not painting myself as some sort of perfect person. You know, the tendency to do some of these things is is there because when you cover politics, you inevitably get emotional about things. You get annoyed. You stop thinking as critically and clearly, and you basically rely on gut and instinct and emotion. But this doesn't necessarily lead to you conducting yourself in a way that is productive. I like to think of um, dealing with politics, you're not um, approaching it as some sort of rhetorician where you're shouting people down. You need to think of it in terms of grand strategy, almost like a general. You need to be sat down thinking clear-headedly about strategy. You don't want to be angry and venting and simply getting catharsis out of your engagement in politics. If you're you know, shouting at people, but all you're really doing is making yourself feel better about things, that's potentially making the situation worse, not better. And sometimes amassing an audience for yourself. Yeah, we'll certainly but, be getting onto yeah, that we'll later Yeah, we'll certainly on. talk about it, but I want to say that it is Anger, a lot of people, there's an issue with anger, and I think it goes back to the Iliad. It is, in fact, the main theme of the Iliad, that sometimes you may be incredibly justified in feeling angry. That doesn't make anger a good counsel. Mm -hmm. No, I, I very much and agree And I with think that. that this is the main problem with the people we're talking about on the right. They have embraced the idea that anger is the only solution. Mm-hmm. The only counsel, that's, that's the issue. Mm. And the one thing that I've noticed that I think is perhaps misguided here is that quite often people like the fact that people are being made angry because they're like, well, now finally people are going to do something. But what actually happens is this sort of learned helplessness whereby people point out the constant state of the world being yeah. terrible and it makes you feel powerless to do anything about it. Yeah. And if you're being sort of tormented to the point where you're furious, you can't even think straight about the state of the world, well, you're not going to be able to approach it in a way in which you can best set out to objectively understand the problems and best target it. So I think there's a lot of virtue in taking a step back when you're getting annoyed, looking at why you're annoyed and how you can solve it in a sort of more detached way, a more stoic way, one might say. And I know I've kind of said that previously, but it does need to be said because lots of people seem to think that just because the world is bad, it's a free license to be angry and upset and shout at people. And actually, you should conduct yourself with sort of virtue, no matter what the circumstances are. My vision of what it means to be a good person, not saying you have to you know, copy what I think, but this is just food for thought, is that no matter what circumstances I'm in, I will remain just as principled as I want to be in any given scenario. I totally agree with you. And I think that this is the noble way of being. And people who don't see this, especially in the context of culture wars, they fall into another trap of the left, which has to do with moral decline. They constantly lament about moral decline but the question is, at the end of the day, why are you better? If you adopt the, the exact same mindset 
and acting the exact same way as the people you're decrying, why are you better? Why should your version of what should be done be heard more than others? So I think that this is yet another way of the to, to show yet another area where the toxicity of the left and its leveling down mentality is shown. It's not just leveling down of resources. It's not just leveling down materially speaking. It's also leveling down morally speaking and, and um, spiritually speaking. Mm. And I think that this is yet another trap of falling into the behavior of mimicking your cultural opponent. I very much agree. And I think that people also need to realize that engaging with these competing ideas, it has a sort of eroding effect over time. And unless you're sort of vigilant and you, you build defenses against that erosion, it may slowly creep in and eventually you find yourself more and more adopting these behaviors. And this is just a natural human thing. It's not necessarily something to feel um, particularly guilty about because that's just the human condition at the end of the day. You can't necessarily help how you respond to the world if you're responding in a sort of unconscious way. But the, the point in which you can be held sort of morally culpable for it is in failing to intervene consciously when you notice you going beyond a certain point, maybe. Exactly. And I would say that, of course, we can be... I don't think we can be 100% objective not, yeah. and also I'm also sometimes guilty of the things I will be uh, accusing today and the kinds of behaviors. I think everyone so, is, aren't they? Yeah, so. so I'm just honest about it. But the issue is at least try to be better. That's where it seems to me that the leveling down mentality of people from the cultural left is most evident, is that they constantly create an ideology that supports the idea that there is no point in trying, or the idea, in even worse manifestations, that if you are trying, you are a bad person. And I think that when people adopt this idea on any area of the spectrum, that there is absolutely no point in trying to improve things, there's absolutely no point in trying to maintain a moral stature or a moral character, that is uh, the harbinger of really bad moral decline. Mm -hmm. And I think that to make this uh, kind of turn it on its head and be a bit more positive about why I think you should um, identify, we, we will be getting onto the sort of behaviours, we haven't really touched on that yet, and why they're bad and that sort of thing. But um, just as a sort of reason to care about it in the first place, if all of what we talked about hasn't been enough so far, is that I think that one of the best ways to have psychological well-being is to strive for self-actualization, yes. meaning that um, you're trying to reach a point where you feel like you're doing the best for yourself in a psychological sense. And what that means in, in the real world, really, is that you are carrying yourself in a way that you feel proud of, that you're developing um, your intellect in ways you um, are happy with, that you can control your emotions in a way that is appropriate, you can conduct yourself in a way in which it's suited for each situation. And of course, that's a difficult thing to judge a lot of the time. And um, of course, reaching a point of self-actualization is not an easy thing. It's one of those things like being objective, where 
it's a very noble goal. It's better if you strive for it, but you're not ever going to, you know, be perfect, are you? Yeah. I think also it depends on how we conceive of self-actualization because ideas of self-actualization have to do with uh, the values each person sets for himself. So Mm -hmm. I would say that in some cases, the values that people associate with their idea of self-actualization are incredibly low and it's a low bar. So they mm-hmm. can actualize these values and realize these values and themselves by implication, but that, that doesn't mean that it is a correct way to be mm-hmm. or that they will actually feel good with themselves. Mm-hmm. Not to sound too much like, uh, I suppose, a wishy-washy uh, sort of new age religion type, but you should be sort of striving for the transcendent in a sense. You should be striving for the tippity-top, no matter who you are. Even if you're not going to achieve it, you just need to identify your end destination yes. in, a, in a certain extent. And, you know, constantly examine it and kind of reassess what you're striving for in the first place because, you know, circumstances may change. You may get new information that may change how you do it, but only you can really guide yourself. I find that when people say, do this and it will make you a better person, I find that style it kind of rubs me the wrong way even if i agree with the thing that they're suggesting doing because it hasn't acknowledged the fact that perhaps more some people are in more need of doing that thing than others yes um it doesn't acknowledge the fact that maybe they're wrong about what you should do there should be some uncertainty in there so if you're suggesting prescribing a certain behavior i think the best way of approaching it and all of the behavioural prescriptions I'm going to be making today are going to fall under this umbrella of my opinion is based on the evidence that I have. I know this is very wordy. You'd put it in shorthand if you were actually to say it. But my um, perspective on this issue, um, given the evidence I have, is that it seems like the most beneficial thing to do this thing to address this problem. I think this gives me a really good pass to introduce a distinction that I think will be very helpful for our discussion. The distinction between the content of a belief and the manner in which the belief is held. So for instance, very frequently we don't see the difference. We could have two people who believe the exact same thing, but in completely different ways. So for instance, you may have someone who moralizes in the same way that you feel a bit suspicious of. So, for instance, I could say things like, you know, you need to clean your bed, okay? Or take Peterson, for instance, say you need to make up your room first. Mm -hmm. There are people who say this in a manner that suggests that if you don't do this, you're a scum. And that they wouldn't, let's say, allow any kind of debate about it. Mm. Okay? But there are other people who could express the same idea in a very different manner. And I think, in fact, it's the latter uh, that Peterson expresses. That I think that, for the most part, given the evidence I have encountered and amassed from life, I think that these behaviors are going to be conducive to your well-being. And in that sense, I'm telling you to clean your room. I think that there is a very big difference, especially, for instance, if we think some, 
let's say, I would say extreme religions that tell you to do something and if you don't do it, you face severe repercussions and sometimes parts of you are being chopped. And uh, the other type of expressing an idea and the other injunction, I would say, for people to do something. Which means that we can have the same belief that, for instance, doing something is good for you, but communicated by different people in different ways who are ultimately having completely different goals when it, uh, that they want to realize when they are mm -hmm. giving you that injunction. So I've got two points to make here. Yeah. The first one is quite a simple one. It's that even the people who put forward their opinions in quite a forceful rhetorical style, quite often if you pull them up on it and talk to them about it, they will acknowledge that they are fallible. It's just that they don't communicate it in such a way. And I've noticed this um, it seems to be a little bit more prevalent on the American right, um, more so than Britain, whereby we're, we're just naturally inclined to word things more carefully in, in Britain. Not, not to denigrate the, uh, the ability to articulate of Americans, of course, but it's simply that you, you have a culture that's more accepting of being forthright about what you believe. Uh, and that's not necessarily a, a good or bad thing, I, I don't know. Um, but my point being is that people may well express themselves with more certainty than they would privately um, admit. Yes. And that it's always worth bearing that in mind. But um, the, the second point is, it's interesting that you bring up Peterson because um, sort of 2017 Peterson did... The, the sort of rhetorical style of this is my evidence, this is what I think based on that, um, I think it might be a good idea for you to do this very well. I think that's part of the reason why what he was saying resonated with people because it didn't seem preachy. It seemed like he was looking at evidence and suggesting based on the evidence what he thought was the best thing. And I think he was doing that. And more recently he's been a bit more of the former rhetorical style, the, the sort of meme that became up yours woke moralists and things like that. And um, this, this very forceful style that I don't think is going to convince nearly as many people as the, the former. It also, um, it seems more emotionally driven. And so if someone's already on the fence about being convinced by you, the fact that you seem angry might not help the situation. And one person in, in the sort of political commentary sphere that um, many people not, might not be familiar with, but he's a, an English guy that goes by the name of Peter Lloyd. He was very big in the sort of days of 2015 feminism. But what he did, which I really admired, and uh, it's rare to hear the word admired come from my mouth, but um, he would approach debate with these crazy feminists with a, a sort of boyish glee about him. He would kind of be smiley, polite, and clearly take pleasure in the exchange, even though the feminist was going crazy and shouting at him. And he just maintained his composure, acted polite, made his points rationally and calmly, whilst the feminist was going crazy and shouting, screaming, saying, this is sexist, this is terrible, blah, 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 blah. And opposite was a very calm person who seemed personable and polite. And the contrast between the two spoke for itself. It's like you're a representative of your beliefs. And if you conduct yourself like a frothing at the mouth lunatic, 
people are going to think, well, if you believe that those things, you're going to end up like that person. And we do this of wokists all the time, don't we? If you believe that, you know, everyone's racist and everyone's out to get you, ooh, then you become a spiteful and horrible person. We can identify this, and I think that there's some truth to that. But um, there's just a lot of practical use in behaving in a way in which you're calm and composed and you just put forward your ideas reasonably and rationally. I think the main problem with this trend is that it justifies violence as a preemptive strike. If you spread out the idea that everyone is out to get you from the very beginning, then violence becomes the only, it, it, in a sense, it becomes sensible. It also but becomes it becomes a... into a rationalization. It is like lots of people who are, I would say, a bit horrible in, in, as persons, who they constantly, well, when you socialize with them, you, they constantly tell you about how bad everyone ultimately is and how not, people are not good. And I'm just, when I encounter people like that, I'm saying, honestly, are you telling me I'm a bad person? You are here and you try to make me feel guilty about myself and tell me I'm a bad person just out of nowhere, without you knowing me. And I'm supposed to take that positively. And I almost invariably have found that people who embrace this rhetoric, they're rationalizing taking a, themselves taking advantage of other people because they, they have constructed this idea that everyone is bad, everyone will take advantage of them, so they might as well hit people and stab people in the back because if they don't, unless they do it first, they're going to suffer it. Mm -hmm. So I've got two things to say here. The first of which is um, even outside of politics, just in life in general, if all someone does is complain about how bad other people are, that's not a likable trait to have. Yeah. You're not going to have people want to listen to you if all you do is whinge about other people because the implication is that you probably, when your back is turned, that that other person whinges about you too. It's just that they're a negative person and they want to drag everyone down. It certainly doesn't work in politics. And although I do think plenty of people are bad people, it's not very useful to point it out because it's that sort of old filmmaker's uh, phrase of show and don't tell. I don't feel the need to go out of my way and say uh, wokeists are bad people because their actions should speak for themselves. I don't need to lower myself to even uh, say, look at how bad they are, aren't they terrible, aren't they awful people? Because you just need to show people what they're doing. You don't need to say, hey, these people are so terrible. Yeah. Because it, it, it's useful in some circumstances, I suppose. It's not, I'm not making a blanket claim for everything, but it, it's just a more general point about um, negativity more generally, I think. Yeah. I think it is important to start in a scholastic manner by saying, what do we mean by wokeness? What we intend to capture with a term. So for instance, we could set, say that by wokeness, we aim to capture a system of beliefs or by wokeness we aim to capture the manner in which beliefs are held and communicated, or we need to capture some dispositions or some characteristic traits. I think it's important to go like that, because mm -hmm. otherwise we fall into, I would say, the Platonist trap of trying to find one and only one term 
one definition that a term attaches to and uh, dismissing everyone else, which I think is counterproductive. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.